Thanks, Harold. So you may notice I don't have a tie on this morning, which is a little unusual. I had a real dilemma. So I went last night after the game, and I went to my closet, and I started looking and thinking about tie. What tie am I going to wear tomorrow? And I realized that every tie I had could be interpreted a certain way. So I have ties. I have orange in them, which would be, you know, bragging. That's not good. And then I had ties that have kind of a red, you know, in them. And that would be like, bring on the dogs again. And that that's not good. And I had other ties that had crimson in them. And I, I can't wear that. That's just poking, you know, finger in the eye of Alabama fans. So I went with a purple shirt. I don't think there's any football team that has this color. And no tie. Okay? So... There can be no interpretation other than War Eagle. Um, <laughs> that's all out of the way. We, that's done. Um, so, thinking about um, thinking about Thanksgiving and uh, this past week, and you know, how do we give thanks? What should we give thanks for? I, I started thinking. I don't have a. I mean, I, you know, I know we're to be thankful and joyful in all things and, and there's, you know, some, some, uh, guidelines, parameters like that. But I started thinking, well, how does Paul give thanks? Uh, how, what does that look like maybe in some, some passages in scripture? And so, um, I went and I looked and obviously, uh, uh, Marion read for us, uh, the parallel, pa- one of the parallel passages to this section in Ephesians. But even if you were to go to uh, Philippians and you go to Romans, Paul seems to do this in each of his letters. He he has a section somewhere in there where he he expresses his thankfulness for the believers, and um, and then he usually gives thanks, you know, for what has, God has done in their lives, and then somehow he leads that that leads and he, he ties that into his prayers for them. And I, you know, that, that's, that's a good idea because I don't know about you, but I think what tends to happen for us a lot of times is that when, when we pray, when we pray, hopefully we're, we're doing that some, we get, we get kind of trapped in the, we're, we're praying for friends and we're praying for family when something's wrong. We're praying for health situations, not a bad thing, um, but that tends to be the cycle that we're trapped in. We pray for people when things are rough and when things are going poorly, poorly for them, and, um, and you know, we're asking that God will lift them up and sustain them and those sorts of things. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is praying for, he, first, he's thankful for fellow believers, so maybe what this could be is a, an exhortation, and encouragement for us to think about the body, all right? To think about folks that are in, in our sphere that know the Lord Jesus, and um, and this is how we can pray for them. Not just when they're sick, not just when you know uh, cancer's calling or you know whatever, but pray for them. Before that happens, right? How are we doing that? What what does our prayer life look like for those people that are next to us, beside us, walking through life with us when things aren't trouble? Um, 
And I think Paul gives us a, a real nice roadmap here. So this is your two and a half point sermon, <coughs> which I promised Robert last week so that you can help decorate or pull out the decorations today. So we'll have time for that. So here's the baseline when you look at what Paul is talking about in this section of Ephesians, okay? What he, kind of the bedrock is, he is praying that they would know God better. That's kind of the bedrock, you know, of this passage is he's praying that they would know God better. The the second and one-half point is that there's kind of a threefold understanding that he's hoping they will have concerning God and the Lord Jesus. Okay? So, the bedrock is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Our prayer for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are around us, is know God better. And then, how does that, what does that look like? So, let's just take this first point, right? Paul prays that they would know God better. Let's look at it. Verse 15, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Okay, there's the thankful part. He's thankful for them and remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you two things. The spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And then verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Now, here is, uh, so verse 17 and 18, he prays um, for those very two specific things. A spirit of wisdom and revelation and that the heart, the eyes of their hearts will be opened. Now. I don't know about you, when I first read those, when I think about those two statements, or those two prayer requests that he's, that he is, uh, that he's praying for there, I think to myself, what is he, what does that mean? What does it mean that the eyes of your heart would be opened? Okay, that's kind of a metaphor that maybe we're not, we don't, we don't tend to use that sort of language. But what Paul is saying in this is, that there's a spiritual dimension to your understanding and my understanding that only God can give to us. Only the Spirit of God can enable us to see and know God the way that Paul is praying. So uh, there's, there's at least a couple of parts to that if you begin to think about it. One is, you can't will it. Have you ever, have you ever tried to will understanding something in Scripture, and it's just not happening at that point in time, and then maybe five years later or a year later, ten years later, suddenly it's like the eyes of your heart are opened. You, you, you get it. You understand it. I, I remember year many years ago, um, I, we were in college. I don't know. I, I think maybe we weren't married yet. Uh, maybe we had just been married because we were living in the new housing. But, um, but we were in college, and I remember I, I had gone to this elder's house. He'd given me some tapes, and it was the uh, Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, okay? And it was heavy hitters. J.I. Packer was there, um, 
couple of other guys, I don't, I don't remember, but it, it was some of the old heavy hitters, and it was a set of tapes from this conference, and the title of it was Redemption Accomplished and Applied, okay? So we just did a Sunday school class on this. And I remember, I remember sitting in the pool listening to a cassette tape, and I know those, some of you, there's a couple of you at least in the room that don't remember cassette tapes. Um, but I remember sitting in the pool listening to these talks on sanctification, justification, glorification. And, and I had no eyes, no eyes, no ears. I didn't, it, it was gobbledygook to me. I mean, it, it may as well, I may, you know, jello, nailing jello to the wall. It just was not happening for, for me in my gray matter. I didn't know. I didn't have the categories. I didn't have the understanding. I, it, and it wasn't just that I wasn't smart enough. I could hear the words. I, I, you know, I could go and look it up in a dictionary. I didn't understand what it meant spiritually for me. I didn't understand any, any of it. And, and it took years for those eyes to be opened in my heart. And so there's a spiritual component here that you just can't will. You have to pray for. You have to ask God to, to do that, to open the eyes of your heart, to give you that spiritual wisdom of understanding. But, but here's a, another part to that is, think about those folks that you're walking through life with. And maybe you're a little bit further down the road. Those spiritual eyes of yours have been opened, but theirs hasn't. And think about the graciousness that is required there for you to walk gently with them and, and to not be overbearing. You know, there was a period um, not too very long ago for me where the spiritual eyes of my heart are being opened and I'm mad at people around me who's, you know, who are not seeing what I'm seeing and they're not understanding what I'm understanding. I was hard on them. I was harsh with them. Um, in reform circles and in, in seminary circles, we call this the cage phase because what you need to do is throw that guy in the cage and lock him up for about five years and let him mellow out. Um, I, I, I needed some mellowing. I, I needed to, to realize it's not, it's not just a matter of willing it. It's not a matter of, you know, they're being obstinate necessarily. It's that they don't have spiritual eyes to see. And so we want to deal graciously with the people we're walking with and, and not just deal graciously with them, but pray for them. Because what is Paul praying? Ephesian believers, I pray that you will have the eyes of your heart open. I pray that you will have this wisdom that comes from the spirit of wisdom. And that that spirit will unfold God's truth for you. What a beautiful thing to to, uh, to be praying for. Um, you know, and and then think about this part. Paul is asking, he's he's. There's an inference here, and the inference is they don't know God the way He does, and that they and that He hopes they will. So there's a there's a knowledge lacking for them, and so Paul is praying that that knowledge gap will be filled, and that it will be filled with a knowledge and understanding of God. And we're going to talk about the things that he's praying specifically for them, but just right now, understand that bedrock, right? Paul is really asking. I want them to know God, to know Him. Now, you can have, there is a sense in which you can know a lot about 
know about God and not know God. Are you with me? Now, you, you can't not know him without knowing about him, but it is possible to know about him and not know him. Um, we would, we would say in, in the military, in the Air Force, we would say that a guy like that or a person who knows a lot about God but doesn't really know him is all thrust and no vector. Okay? Uh, so there's a lot of power there. There's a, there's maybe a zeal, Paul says in, in Romans 10-2, there's a zeal without understanding. Okay? So there's a lot of passion and stuff, but they, but they don't really know God. And Paul is praying that they would know him in a, a significant way, in a way that changes their lives. Maybe that still doesn't get it for you, because that's still conceptually kind of a hard, what does it look like then to know him? I mean, help me understand that. So I think about this. Um, you know, you, you can know about God. So uh, our shorter catechism says, you know, who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, okay, three big categories, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So, okay, I can know that, but what does it mean to know that God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? What does it mean to know those characteristics about him? Well, you have to be in relationship with him. You, ha- you, you have to have entered into some sort of a relationship with him. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says that there are at least three elements here, right? The first is there has to be a matter of personal dealing with God. So it's one thing to know, you know, God is out there, he's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable, and all of those things. It's another to actually enter into that relationship with him. So uh, there has to be some personal dealings with this God to understand that he is God, that he's created me, but that he has sent his son into the world, that I can have this relationship with him. The second thing that Packer says is that knowing God is a, pa- a matter of personal involvement and mind and will and feeling. He says it this way, the believer joices, rejoices when God is honored. He feels distress when God is flouted and shame when he is convicted of his own failures. The relationship is personal. There's a personal involvement. He knows God such that those things are, are a reality. The third, knowing God is a matter of grace, he says. And he puts it this way, the initiative is with God and all throughout the relationship. He gives the relationship its parameters and God is so completely above us and we have so completely forfeited all our claim on his favor because of our sins. God has established that relationship and it is a matter of grace and we know that and we understand that and we live and we move and we have our being understanding that dynamic of God's grace, our need. And Packer concludes, he says, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but that God knows me, right? And, uh, and that's kind of how he, how he sews that up. So we would say it in 2017, the way we would talk about this is, you have to have a personal relationship with God. Uh, that's kind of the way we talk about it in our parlance. You have to have understood your need of a Savior. 
your need to have a relationship with God. And then there has to have been an understanding of what he has done for you and what that means for you going forward. Um, You think about it this way. Many of you in this sanctuary know other people. You know of them. You know about them. But in order for you to really know them, what is it going to require? Not just mere knowledge. You've already got that. So, you know, I may say, hey, you know, uh, so-and-so, and and you you go, oh, yeah, I I know them. I I mean, I don't really know them. I I know I know of them, right? I know their names. I know who they are. I, I can put a name with a face. But to really know them, you would have to sit down, probably have dinner, you know, spend several hours visiting, talking. Now you know them, and in order for that relationship to grow, what has to happen? More of that. You have to sit with them multiple times. You have to have multiple dinners before you begin to really understand what makes them tick and, and their likes and their dislikes and who they are as people. And it's much the same way for us in our relationship with God. There has to be a communing with God that takes place. Where does that take place? Well, primarily, we would say it takes place right here, right? When we gather together and we worship There is something particularly special that happens, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, in this body as we gather together as God's people. That is a powerful part of knowing who God is because he is expressed to us clearly as as members of the body of Christ. We are seeing him at work in the members, right? And so we know him by virtue of knowing one another. We know him by virtue of knowing Christ. And so we have Christ proclaimed in the word. We have Christ proclaimed in the sacrament. We know him by virtue of prayer. And we know him because he's revealed himself to us in scripture. All right. So Paul is praying. I pray for you that you would know God better. That you would really have this connection. Let's talk about what it is that he's praying for. Three things. First, he says, uh, let's look at verse 18 and we'll move into it. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That is the first thing. He's praying, right, that this knowledge that he wants them to have. And the first one is that he wants them to know and to understand the hope to which he has called you. Now think about that. Hope, okay, this hope is something that is forward-looking, um, of seeing God, of knowing God, of being with him for eternity. And so Paul is praying, look, I pray that you will, that you will have this hope in your heart that is present, that, that is out there, that is available to you because of who you are. So you will have this steadfast hope that is residing in you and that you will know that hope because that hope anchors you. That hope grounds you. So you can think of uh, the analogy that I came up with is, I don't, I don't know, I, I, I like it. I think it works, but it may, it may, it may challenge some of you. So, so think of it this way. A football coach... <laughs> Football coach has just won a big game. You've, you've seen this a million times, okay? He's just won the big game. 
And, and they put a microphone in front of him and they say, so, uh, you know, um, what do you think about next week when you play Georgia? Okay. And what does he say? No, 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 no. I don't want to think about next week. My guys just, we just played the number one team in the land. We want to enjoy this right now. Now, okay, that would be part of the analogy. We want to, we want to sit in this and simmer in it right now, okay? You've heard a football coach say, he wants his team to enjoy it, to savor it. That's part of what Paul is saying. Look, he's saying you have a hope, okay? But your hope that's out there in the future has something to do with right now. Because that hope is only a reality because the reality right now for the Christian is, A, you've been forgiven. There is no sin that you can commit that can separate you from God. The only sin is the sin of unbelief, which isn't something that the Christian can possess. Okay? So there's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is a truth that's reality right now. And it's a truth that is hopeful because it is looking to the future, right? It points you, it pushes you into the future as well. And so you sit in that, you simmer in that. I mean, that's a glorious truth that you have as a believer. That no matter your struggle, no matter, no matter how bad you mess this up, he has said, you're mine. And I've set my love on you. And, and oh yeah, by the way, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is already yours. You are already in possession of it. Now, but not fully. That's the hope part, right? And so that hopefulness would be, okay, a, a, a complete hopefulness for the football coach, if the analogy we're gonna, we're gonna resonate and really be true would be that he knows what's gonna happen next week. Right? He knows the, the certainty of next week, which he can never know, which is why he says, we're just going to simmer in it right now. We'll think about all that other stuff later. But the Christian can say, we're going to simmer in it right now because we know what's going to happen next week and the week after and the week after and the week after and the week after. And what is it? It's victory upon victory upon victory upon victory because Christ has already secured all of that for you. He has already made the way clear for you. And so there's this hopeful expectation that we have because we know the future, but we sit in it right now, today. And that's what theologians often call the now and the not yet. There's the amazing moment of glorification that yet awaits us, right? The consummation of all things. And it is so sure and it is so certain that the reality comes all the way back into the present, and you can know it. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of the Christian's DNA. We've been forgiven. We have the righteousness of Christ applied to our account. The Father smiles on us today because of all that Christ has done. Not because of what you've done, but because of what He has done in your stead. See? Here's the second part, and it's close to it, right? The second part is the riches. He wants you to know, first, the hope to which you've been called, okay? Glorification in Christ. Second, 
he wants you to know the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. So the first petition deals with our hope. That is the assurance that we have. The second petition has to do with the scope of the inheritance, which we've already been touching on. Okay, so the first part is the assurance. I'm assured of what is going to happen, therefore I can live differently. The second part is the scope of what awaits. And that is the riches of the glorious inheritance that we have as his people. Now what is that? What is the glorious inheritance that is ours as his people? Think on that. Well, we're going to be like Christ. We're going to reign. We, we are co-heirs with Christ. We will reign over the new heavens and the new earth with Him. Right? What about an everlasting joy, a peace? Think of all the things that we looked at when we, when we looked at the book of Revelation. All of the things that will be ours no more tears, no more, no more sorrow, no more pain. That, that we will, we will know God and He will know us. And we will experience all of that joy. That is the vast riches that we have. And we rule and reign over the new heavens and the new earth. And we live. The third and final petition. And this is the one that will feel the most practical to you, probably, okay? And he prays that the Ephesians and us, that we will know his incomparably great power. Mega power. That we will know that. So, This feels the most practical because if you think about it and you think about what Paul is praying for, right? He's praying for Christians who have, they're living somewhere between God's calling, okay? The call of God on their lives, which which was in the past, and the riches of our inheritance, which are in the future. And so the middle period is taken up with what you and I are doing now. And what Paul says is, I pray that you will know his mega power right now. In this intervening period between the now and the not yet, that you will know the power of God. But it's not just any power, it's a specific power. <coughs> now you can think about this. Okay? If you were going to think about the power of God, how would you describe it? What would be Like, what is the thing that he's done that you would say, that's really going to communicate the power of God to people? You would probably say, I would say probably, first off, somebody asked me, how do you know, what does it mean that God's all, well, he created everything, right? He created the world. That's pretty powerful. He created the galaxies. That's really powerful. I mean, we look out with telescopes, we can see that there are bazillions umpteen trillions of stars. I mean, he's created all that vastness. It's mind-boggling what's been created. 
Think of the intricacies of the body, the power to create all of this, uh, that it works, that it functions, and, and creation, and all of the animals. Those are very powerful things. But that's not what Paul talks about. You can think about Mount Everest, you can think about the mountains, you can think about the oceans, you can think about hurricanes, vast powers. Those aren't the things that Paul talks about. What does he talk about? Well, look at it. Verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty power that he exerted when? When he raised Christ from the dead. And he goes on. There's a whole sermon in verses 19 to 23. In fact, there's about five sermons in 19 to 23. Okay? But here's what he says. He says, I pray that you will know his mega power, which is the same mega power that he used to raise Christ Jesus from the dead. Now, man, why is that such a big deal? We just talk about the resurrection. Really? I mean, does the resurrection stir you? I mean, really, let's just... Does it stir you? It, I mean, it's, you know, you think about it. We believe it. We trust it. But does it stir you? It stirred the Apostle Paul. Because think of what he is saying. What is the greatest power you and I are going to face? It's the power of death. That's what strikes the greatest fear in us is death. Right? Safety. We want to be safe. We want to be secure. We, we, we want, we don't want death to come too soon. And that is the greatest fear that we have is dying because it's the greatest power that there is. That's why hurricanes are so feared. That's why earthquakes are so feared. Okay. Did y'all, did y'all see, uh, you know, there was a, we didn't hear a whole lot about it. It was a gargantuan earthquake on the Iranian-Iraq border just a couple of weeks ago. Did you see any of the footage from inside of the buildings? Now, you have to have lived in the Middle East, okay? And you have to have no construction in the Middle East to have understood the reaction. And the reaction was, get out of that building now, right? The ground starts shaking, and everybody runs into the street. Why? Because they fear dying, and they know that buildings in the Middle East collapse quite easily. But they fear death. We fear death, and we fear dying. That is the greatest power that is arrayed against us. It's death. And that's why Paul says, I want you to know the greatest power. The greatest power is the power that overcame death that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead. And I want you to know that power because that power, he says, is the power that is available to us who are living. You don't have to wait until you die to experience the power that he's talking about. That's why Paul is praying that the believers would experience it. What do you need it for? 
Well, you need it for things like Colossians 3, right? The putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new. I mean, you want to understand the struggle in, that is taking place in your heart and mind and life? It is, it is a death struggle for the Christian heart. And what Paul's saying is, I hope that you will be able to experience the power that raised Christ from the dead in your life as you're walking the life that he's given to you. Because that power is the power to put off the old man and to put on the new man. That's the power that we have. Listen, that's why when Paul, it's, it's quite radical really, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul quote, quoting Hosea says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Really? I mean, he's taunting death. He's laughing at death. How can he do that? He can do that because he is just extolled for us the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And he has secured our victory. I want to read for you a letter. We're going to close here. It's a letter written by a German Lutheran pastor who was put to death in a Nazi death camp. You don't know him. I don't know him. He's not famous, but his name's Herman. And he wrote this to his parents, and he said this. When this letter comes into your hands, I shall no longer be among the living. The thing that has occupied our thoughts constantly for many months is now about to happen. If you ask me what state I am in, I can only answer. I am first in a joyous mood and second filled with a great anticipation. God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanates from Christ. I am amazed. In Christ I have put my faith, and precisely today I have faith in him more firmly than ever. And then he says this, My parents... Look up the following passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 14.8. Look anywhere you want in the Bible, and everywhere I find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. What can really happen to a child of God? Of what, indeed, should I be afraid? Everything that till now I have done, struggled for, and accomplished has at bottom been directed to this one goal whose barrier I shall penetrate today. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. For me, believing will become seen, hope will become possession, and I shall forever share in him who is love. Should I not then be filled with anticipation? What is it all going to be like? The things that up to this time have been permitted, I have been permitted to preach about, I shall now see. There will be no more secrets nor tormenting puzzles. Today is the great day. From the very beginning, I have put everything into the hands of God, and now he demands this end of me. Good. His will be done. And so until we meet again above in the presence of the Father of light, your joyful Herman. That is the power that raised Christ from the dead working. And Paul prayed it for the Ephesian believers. He prayed that they would have it because they didn't, and he knew that he they needed it. Likewise, you and I don't have it in the quality nor the quantity that we need it. And so, we, like Paul, should be praying that sort of prayer for one another. 
in our thanksgiving, as you think about the people in your life you're thankful for, your friends, your family, don't just pray for the ailments. Pray for their victory over them and the power of God. Pray for their living, not just surviving, but living as he's called us to. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your goodness to us. We are joyful in our anticipation and expectation of what awaits. Make us more joyful. Give us more confidence. Build up our hope. Give us strength. Let us live in the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And do it all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing the first and the last.